welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey, everyone. Look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoomland with Kristen Redmond, Global Commodity Analyst at Schneider Electric Energy and Sustainability Services. Kristen, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm well. Things yeah. are busy, but <laughs> overall surviving. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Everyone, it's interesting because everyone says I'm busy, right? But I think naturally everyone's busy, but is it like busy, busy work or is it like productive, like you're getting stuff done? Because I think there's a big difference. I mean, I'd say it's mostly you know productive getting stuff done. It's just trying to communicate as quickly as possible about ever-changing events constantly. As soon as you send out updates on one thing, something new happens and you're back to square one trying to communicate new things. So it's in markets like we have today. I mean, at least the job's interesting, but <laughs> yes, it keeps me very, very busy. <laughs> I know, right? It, there's never a dull moment. It reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with who Dan Pickering is, but he's with Tudor Pickering and Holtz and he's, you know, very dialed into markets. And I had him on my podcast and he said he goes to bed scrolling Bloomberg and wakes up scrolling Bloomberg And I was like, Dan, you need to disconnect, man. Like, I don't know, (laughs) like you got to unplug, but with markets, especially in energy and global markets, there's just, there's always something like it's, you could literally just sit online and just keep reading and reading and updating yourself on what's currently happening. And, And especially in your role, I mean, like the more real time you can deliver, I'm sure is what everyone wants and essentially what Schneider gets paid for. So I try to disconnect as much as possible outside of work. I mean, I do have my different news alerts on my phone and sometimes I'll read about it. And to a certain extent, I find some of that enjoyable. But the good thing is, is when you're a true market expert in something like energy, you can look at a headline and know whether generally whether or not it's just noise and then like, "Ah, I don't care about that and kind of write it off. And sometimes I'll get a headline where I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting to like get some kind of news on that. And it'll be like, really big, but yeah. And really that's what a lot of our clients pay, uh, especially my piece of the business for is to help separate the noise from what is the real risk? What is the real takeaway message? Because I get questions all day long, people reading news headlines and I'm having to repeat myself. That doesn't matter. That's not how things work. You know, obviously if maybe you're a journalist or something and you don't know how the complexities of energy work. You might think, okay, well, if this happens, then this other thing must happen. Well, it doesn't really work that way. So we help kind of sort that out for customers and point them to what's really important, simplify takeaway messages and tell them, you know, about, it's really a relief, right? When some of these doom and gloom kind of news come out and 
having somebody who can say that's not really something you really have to worry about. I know it's all over the place and yeah, you know, people, that's kind of the common message, but here's why that's not really a concern. Fascinating. You know, you really bring up a good point. So, I mean, do you have mm. a certain sort of like natural filtering system? And I mean, obviously you don't want to give up your trade secrets, but you know, when you're looking at stuff, like are there th- for the audience, right? More and more people, especially with how technology now we're just bombarded by it. I mean, whether it's Twitter, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's, I mean, I don't know if most I don't know people go on Facebook much anymore. I don't, but you know, there's just so much access to information. And then there's like literally a trillion different news sites, whether it's Bloomberg, whether it's Wall Street Journal, whether it's blah, 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 you know, you name it. I mean, what can folks out there like kind of look for? Is there anything that kind of like low hanging fruits is that, you know what, like, here's a good way to kind of approach it because it's just information overload. And a lot of times you do read a bunch of noise and it's like, you don't know what to think. I mean, does anything come to mind? I mean, from a high level for somebody without expertise, I mean, really, I'd say take a lot of things with a grain of salt, because especially when you're looking at the energy industry, any one topic is so complex and you have to really dig into the tiny details to oh. really know what matters and what doesn't. So, you yeah. know, there's no, I think, one easy rule for me. It's really comes. I mean, I've just hit my nine year anniversary working in energy. So wow, for me, a lot of it. Thank you. It comes from context, just being in the business so long, knowing, you know, for example, one of the biggest things we've been having to clear up is, you know, everybody's worrying, okay, well, you know, with everything going on in Europe, is the US going to like suddenly start exporting enormously more amounts of gas and send US gas prices higher? And it's like, no, that's physically impossible. It takes at least two years, usually closer to four years to build a new export terminal. Like I think where people get confused, they don't realize how complex and expensive the equipment is that's needed to create LNG, liquefied natural gas, and be able to put it on a ship and send it. Like you need to have very complex infrastructure in place. And as soon as you build one export plant, it has a certain maximum capacity. There's only so much gas you can send through the pipeline going into the facility. There's only so much capacity of the storage tanks on site to be able to hold and process the LNG for a ship to come through and take it away. There's only so much that can be produced at one time given the current infrastructure. So it's like, no matter what global prices do, no matter how much somebody needs the gas, there's a physical constraint going on there. And, And the US for one has been maxing out that constraint for more than a year. So that's really been a big message that clients have been worrying about for a while now. And I'm constantly just having to repeat, it's not going to change materially from here. It's physically impossible. You know, when you see headlines that, oh, you know, presidents of this country are talking to leaders in Europe or whatever, a lot of it's political because say, whether you're the US or Qatar, we have physical constraints going on here. Maybe we can move things around to get a few more cargoes over, but it's not going to materially change the situation. Right. Yeah. Physics matter. Yeah. And time in, that's a good point actually, because a lot of folks, again, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of times it's like, Oh, we'll just ship more, but essentially the amount of work. And I mean, there's capacity matters, right? Like if you just physically can't, then yeah, it takes time. So no, that's really a good point. And again, I think it comes down to just, you know, if you're out there curious about all this stuff is like, just 
do your hours of research and try to, you know, think of it sort of as a whole system versus just a numbers game. <laughs> Cause although yeah. it is a numbers game, it's like this stuff takes time. It's, you know, I'm in the, in the upstream space in the drilling world, I've been in drilling since 2004 and, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, well, you know, energy demands up. Well, why don't we just produce more? And it's like, well, you know, that it costs, it's capital intensive. You need drilling rigs, you need completion equipment, you need people, and you can't just like, poof, this stuff comes out of nowhere. Right. It takes a lot of time, a lot of work, and especially a lot of money, which, you know, arguably right now, the upstream space is underinvested for us to be able to ramp up production like we were able to, you know, years ago, which is a whole nother topic of conversation. But going back to that, I think that's really interesting. So and there's a lot of, you know, I want to ask questions to add on to that, but I'm curious to sort of pivot a little bit here more to you. Where are you visiting from today or where are you recording from rather? Louisville, Kentucky. I'm born and raised here. Okay. <laughs> I probably have plans to stay here long-term. So wow. I'm a Kentucky girl. <laughs> okay. Which is interesting because, you know, with your role and everything, you'd think maybe you know, somewhere's in Houston or New York or, you know, but like, Louisville, Kentucky. I don't think like I've been in oil and gas since 2004. And again, I don't think I've ever met anyone from Kentucky, nor have I been there. But, you know, what's the best part of Louisville, Kentucky? Like, obviously, you love it there. Why? <laughs> you know, I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life and I've found my natural inclination. So I don't want to be kind of in the middle of nowhere in the countryside without access to, you know, people and things to do and that sort of thing. But I also have learned, I really do not like big cities. They kind of, I don't like being crowded shoulder to shoulder with people constantly. I don't like concrete everywhere and everything. So for me, Louisville is like this perfect balance between city oh, and country. Interesting. You know, if I want to, there's tons of like really beautiful parks here. So if I want to go for a long hike, get out in nature, I don't see a single building around. I can do that very easily. But if I want to go into the city, go to a lot of great, Louisville has a great restaurant scene. It's one of the best in the country, actually. Really? Yeah. Okay. Tell me more. Yeah. I mean, so we've actually been getting a lot more attention for that. So, you know, on the other hand, so on that note, if I want to go to like some unique, fun, good restaurants, I can do that. If I want to like see entertainment. There's less of that than obviously if you're in like New York City, but there is a decent number of things to do, interesting things to look at. You know, Kentucky is obviously the heart of bourbon country. It's Yes. So, I'm actually getting married at the end of the month and Hey, congrats. Well, when this airs, you. you'll have been married. So, yeah. all listeners out there, connect with Kristen on LinkedIn, increase her following count and wish her a great marriage. Yeah, it's great. Thank Congrats. You. Yeah. So we're having our reception for the wedding actually in the Fraser History Museum. So they've got actually a whole floor dedicated to bourbon history and everything. So wow. Interesting. So yeah. are you so I mean the obvious question is do you love bourbon? You know, I tolerate the taste of it. <laughs> Me too. My yeah. fiance loves it and you know he can go through a bottle of bourbon quite easily. It's just like, you know, he's like, oh yeah, this one tastes different from that one. I'm like, they all taste like alcohol to me. Right. <laughs> but I do have pride in kind of the Kentucky heritage and the craft that goes behind it. That's so cool. So I'm from Canada, so I'm not very familiar with like, you know, Kentucky, but when I think Kentucky, I think Kentucky fried chicken. Are the two related? I mean, the Kentucky fried chicken's 
started in Kentucky. With it did. Her, okay. Sanders, I know that was a dumb question, but, but no, no, it's not. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> funny because we'll sometimes have people like visiting me internationally or things like that. And the first thing they want to do is go to KFC and we're like, <laughs> that's not good fried chicken. You need to try <laughs> some of these other places. <laughs> we'll take you to some of the good places. And maybe before you leave, we'll stop through a KFC drive through just so you can see what you're not missing out on. But right. probably when it first started, it was very good. But I think with just making it very globalized yeah. chain and everything, I think probably <laughs> quality might have declined. But That's funny. Actually, I remember back when I was working on drilling rigs. So it was a big thing. You know, you're drilling in remote areas and you would either stop, again, Canada, you either stop at like Tim Hortons or Boston Pizza or KFC and you'd bring a bunch of fried chicken on the rig. And Someone had said they changed up their oils and like all of a sudden it, this chicken started tasting different, which I noticed. And so I guess to supplement your point, back in the day, it was probably top notch. Nowadays, I don't know anyone who eats, especially down here in Texas. It's like Chick-fil-A, you know, church's chicken, maybe Popeye's chicken, but not so much KFC. So yeah. anyway, maybe it's the last salvation for them, but I'm sure it's, you know, going strong globally and that's important. That's funny. So you're obviously, you know, big in economics, business analyst. I mean, is that something? So tell us a little bit about like growing up. Was that always something that you were interested in? Because that's not like most kids, my daughter, she wants to be a veterinarian and like play with slime all day. Never once has she said, I want to be an economist. So <laughs> at what point did that kind of strike you and really kind of get your juices flowing, if you will? So it wasn't till high school. So similar to your daughter for a while, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I realized as a veterinarian, you don't just get to see cute, fluffy animals you have <laughs> yeah. to deal with death and like, you know, yeah. seeing animals in critical condition. And I'm like, well, that sounds sad. Right. <laughs> so you don't mean I just pet um, puppies all day? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> For a while, I actually thought I wanted to be a chef because I love cooking. And, ah, then nice. that, and then I realized chefs tend to work stressful, long hours, odd hours and commercial kitchen with all the stainless steel was not quite what I find enjoyable about cooking. I like being in the home environment and, you know, serving your best friends and that sort yeah. of thing. Wow. So once I got into high school, pretty much my biggest goal was I wanted to be financially independent. And so I don't know if it was like cultural influences, but I got into my head, I want to be an international businesswoman. Whatever that meant, I didn't know. Yeah. But I'm like, there's this image in my head of what that looks like. And I think that sounds cool. So actually, University of Louisville had a summer program where they kind of introduced the students to different fields in business. And so there was like a few days about accounting, finance, computer information systems, different things like that. And so there was, of course, a segment on economics. And so I really enjoy the types of questions that economics tends to ask, how you analyze the world and kind of figure out why the world works the way it does. You know, a lot of things I think we look at today, if you don't kind of know the reason for it, you'd be like, why in the world are we doing things that way? Why does the world work this way? It's just wrong. And then when you figure out the inner workings and how things connect together. It's like, oh, it makes so much sense now. So I think I appreciated that. It was funny because, you know, it's not like I had a ton of natural ability to begin with. I mean, economics is so complicated. You wouldn't expect a high schooler to, but it was like every question they asked on this like kind of quiz thing, I got pretty much all of them wrong. 
but I really loved the type of questions it was asking. So I knew going into college immediately, I want to study economics. Ah, interesting. You know, it's interesting you say that because I'm probably most interested in economics, but it is like, I feel like I go through an, like a brain gauntlet whenever, like I've taken economics and most recently finishing up school, we had economics and I probably had to work the hardest to understand it. And although I did well, it was probably took up most of my brain power for the entire program, but it's so fascinating, but it's mm-hmm. so hard. I was talking to my wife about that actually yesterday, talking about economics, because we were talking about just, you know, current global situations and, you know, trying to, you know, she's in the real estate investment side of business and I'm, you know, obviously oil and gas. And so she was kind of like, well, what's going on and all this and that, and trying to explain it. But again, it's so fascinating because it's just like, it it really gives you, at least it forced me to kind of look at things through a bit of a different lens and kind of question, just ask better questions, I guess, as to like Mm -hmm. why things happen the way they do. So then you proceeded to go to university and you study, and then you went to get in your master's as well, right? There at the yeah. same school? Yeah, same school. Sometimes people ask me, why did you do that? Like, you know, I guess, uh, I, well, I won't go into that, but basically. <laughs> we can if you want to. Yeah, I'm like, well, that might be kind of a tangent. But at the end of the day, basically, I mean, for one thing, I wanted to keep working. I liked my job. I wanted to keep working while I was in school. And so if I were to go to say, a different school, A, it would be a lot more expensive and cost was yeah. a big factor for me. I'm like, I've already got enough debt from undergrad. I'm not looking to more than double it. So there was the cost factor. And then, you know, just wanting to keep working. I'm like, I don't know if, you know, I'd have to find a whole new job if I were to move. I don't know if it's going to be an energy and I really love energy. So yeah. you know, being able to stay local and, you know, whenever I was kind of in the middle of the program was when I found my current job. So I basically started the program because I realized, okay, I want to get into things that are more deeply analytical. I'm not that interested in kind of the typical business type routes. Yeah. But whenever I was starting to look into roles that would be more deeply into analytics, you needed higher education. And I knew too, I'm like, I know what things I want to approach, but I don't know how to do that right now. So I need to get the extra skills. So it makes sense. And so you started with Schneider while you were in in your graduate school or undergrad or in grad school? Yeah. Yeah. So it would have been junior year of college. I started as an intern. Nice. And so from there, I just, you know, came on full time and been there ever since. But, you know, it's been really good because I've been able to switch between, I've always been on what we call the operations side, but kind of switching between different roles has allowed me to see different sides of the energy sector, because I mean, there's so many different facets of it. So I've been able to get kind of a mix of experience and be able to see it from a lot of different angles, which has been really good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which I want to dive into a little bit, but so I'm curious knowing now what we know about you, you know, into, I'm sure you're into data analytics, you know, economics markets. I mean, if you had the ideal Friday night, assuming you could just like go anywhere in the world, had enough money to do anything in the world, would it be sitting in front of your computer looking at data or what would that oh, look hell like? Hell no. <laughs> what would that look like? I do this like for money. Person? I don't do it for fun. Uh, so what would that look like? What would be the ideal Friday night for you? You know, it would definitely be with, you know, people closest to me and, you know, the people around you are most important. So yeah. my fiance, I'm very close with my brother and sister. Cool. So they're actually probably my best friends. I do have other friends outside of them, but yeah, you know, my fiance and my brother and sister are kind of my top people. So it, it would definitely 
be with them. You would stay in Louisville, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go anywhere. I'd go other places. I actually just had my bachelorette party in Nashville. So that was Ah. a good time. But no, I'd probably, you know, if we could be a group and maybe travel to, I've always wanted to go to Asia. I haven't been there yet. Most of my travels have been in Latin America, but I don't know, go to like Seoul, South Korea, I'm going to say with my three top people. That would be an ideal. Yes. I love it. Well, hopefully you get to pursue that and and make it happen here one of these days. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So you get on with Schneider. You've done a lot over the years. I'm curious. I mean, as we grow in our careers, we experience more, we get exposed to a heck of a lot more, but what core belief has changed or have you changed your mind on over the last few years, whether that's like market wise or just perception of energy in general? Like, does anything really say, you know what? Like, I really didn't think of it like that. And now I'm more sort of, you know, have changed my belief in any aspect. Does anything come to mind? That's a tough question. We can go back to it or you don't have to answer it. (laughs) I know it was kind of a blindside question, but I was just curious. I mean, I guess if I could point to one thing, it would be, you know, I've been passionate about sustainability since you know, high school, college, whatever the range was, whenever I really started thinking about it a lot. And so I actually took a environmental economics class in college. And, you know, at the time, the big talk was about, you know, the energy transition and using natural gas as a bridge for fuel. And it's this clean energy source that is going to help transition away from, say, coal and other fuels and get us to renewables. And so I actually wrote my paper about how we should just skip gas altogether because it's not that clean. It might be from a burning perspective of CO2, but when there's so many methane leaks that you end up getting, especially in city distribution systems and that sort of thing. And methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas than CO2 is. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why, why are we doing this sort of thing? And now, you know, fast forward, I'm a natural gas analyst primarily. <laughs> Right. And so even though, you know, the points I made, I think are still true. Like, you know, at the end of the day, when you're worrying about natural, like you should be looking at natural gas and questioning how clean it is. And especially with, you know, pipeline leakages, I think are a big thing or venting at well sites when you're looking at that kind of methane release. But I think, you know, the other thing I've come to realize is before I got into the energy space working in it, I think I took for granted a lot, and I think most people do, how complex it is to make a grid as reliable as ours. So like in a Mm. modern electricity grid, you need energy to be accessible, you need it to be reliable, and you need it to be affordable. Yes. And I think we all kind of take that for granted that, okay, well, on a super hot day during the summer, I can turn on my lights at any time, and it's going to work. Like, And when I studied abroad, actually in Argentina, I started to realize that's not always the case for people around the world. Like you get a super big surge in demand, you know, that does happen in the U.S. sometimes, but we're freaking out if our power is out for, you know, two hours a year. God forbid your Wi-Fi goes out. Right. And so it's like, one, that's not the norm in most of the world. And two, it's like the U.S. utilities, they have very strict standards, like And for many utilities around the country, the Public Utility Commission who regulates them, they'll require a certain reliability rate in order for them to get the returns that they're kind of able to collect on in the bills. 
So they're only getting their profits in some cases. It's not, it depends by utility and commission, but for many, especially larger utilities, they're only getting their guaranteed profits based off of how reliable they make the grid. And so, you know, you've got those metrics going on. And so when you really start looking at, say, renewables, it's an intermittent power source. And in certain parts of the country, that might work really well. So, you know, it's really sunny in California, it's windy in Texas. But if you go to like, you know, parts of like in Kentucky, for example, we have tons of tree cover. It's pretty rainy a lot of the time. And we don't have that much wind. So it's like when you're looking at more individualized areas as far as making energy transitions, you face a lot of bigger challenges. And at the end of the day, when you're trying to ensure reliability, you need that baseload source. And so whether that's like, you know, getting better batteries, but right now battery technology is not where it needs to be to be able to guarantee that on a very large long-term scale, last I checked, battery technology on like a utility scale can run at full capacity for about three to five hours. Right. But many times on a grid, you need it to run longer than that. And so there are certain like technological issues that we're facing and we really need to develop, I think, better technologies to be able to make a lot of these bigger moves in the energy transition. So even though gas is not the ideal from an environmental perspective, it's kind of like if we're going to have affordable, reliable energy, I don't know that we have a lot of other choices until we can get better technology. I think, you know, investing in technology is really the big thing that we need to be doing. There are certain different kind of nascent, newer things coming out, such as everybody's talking about hydrogen these days, but that's definitely got a long ways to go before it's like, largely dispatchable on a bigger scale. There's a lot of testing still going on, but I mean, governments are making the investments in it. So we'll see where it goes, but we need some kind of a new technology to make that work where we could get rid of something like gas, for example. But yeah, that was a very long winded answer. No, but I mean, you bring up so many good points and I think the conversation, you know, although, so the conversation that we have typically in oil and gas is it's, you know, Oh, just energy transition. And it's, everyone's trying to, you know, move away from fossil fuels and, you know, but then you look at the data and it's like oil demand is through the roof. Now, granted peak demand, that's a big topic of conversation, but, you know, gas is such an interesting, you know, some people call it a bridge fuel and then others, you know, say it's just ultimately, you know, to give us, if we truly want to move away from fossil fuels, well, we still need natural gas. Cause like you said, baseload capacity is like the biggest thing, you know, and I guess, to like from a global perspective, like you made a good point about being in Argentina. It was Argentina, right? You said, yeah. And studying abroad and, and a lot of folks, especially, you know, in energy have worked in many different places. And most folks, you know, there's a large portion of the world that isn't necessarily trying to, you know, be net zero in their businesses. Like they're really just wanting to make sure they have enough energy to work a full day's work and hopefully provide for their families. And so, you know, they're not quite there, you know, developing, but I think a lot of the energy transition, you know, at least globally needs to like, how can we actually provide the world with, you know, reliable energy? And again, these things take time and money and building and materials to where, you know, that's why kind of people last like 2050 net zero, like that's so far away. Well, I think there's probably a good reason for that. And they, oh, well, they're not even going to be in 
office or these people aren't even going to be around anymore when they reach up. But the reality is, is like it, it again, kind of going back to like, oh, we should just export more LNG to help the world with their natural gas needs. Well, it just doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's the same thing with the transitions. I think people have to understand or at least consider like the entire value chain and really just the time and effort it takes to make these things happen. But, you know, and I think too, technology advancements and, you know, us in oil and gas, obviously, like I would, you know, just through my observation being in it, you know, we've made efforts to try and operate more sustainably, you know, really putting together ESG roadmaps or, you know, net zero roadmaps, especially the majors. I would like to think we're making a pretty good effort. Some headlines would argue that, but either way, you know, I think it's interesting. I think it just also too, like provides so much opportunity and and even for folks like Schneider Electric, you know, to help companies that are now more open-minded to, you know, at least adopting different ways of doing business. And really, instead of it being us against the world, it's like, hey, let's all come together and come up with solutions and integrate because ultimately it's going to take everybody. And that's like I always say, it's not wind or solar or, you know, solar or oil and gas. Like, I think it kind of takes everything, yeah. you know, together. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just a quick comment too. I'm like, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket either with any form of energy source. Cause it's like, we've learned one thing. It's like, they all have their pros and cons. And so if you try to rely too much on any one thing, it's like, well, if something goes wrong, like it might not go wrong for 20 years, but if something happens, then you're kind of SOL, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I think, you know, having a diversity and, you know, again, I'm not, I'm pretty agnostic as far as what the source is, but obviously the cleaner would be better. But as far as, you know, hopefully we'll have some new technologies coming out that can kind of help bridge some of those things. Ultimately to affordability, right? Like we have it right now, arguably very affordable in some parts of the country, most parts, I would say, you know, it's very reliable and yeah, it's abundant especially. And so it kind of brings me to my next topic. And you mentioned earlier, you focus typically or for the majority on gas markets. Um, and gas has been, again, on my side of the business has been a very hot topic. You know, I came down to the US 2010, Marcel Shale, boom, hits, Shale revolution, gas galore. Haynesville was a big play back in the day. Now it's roaring again. I think it has the second highest rate count on a, you know, per basin perspective here in the US. It's got, I think, close to 50 something rigs drilling. And so, yeah, you got the Appalachia, you've got that. And, you know, there's so much interest in that. But one of the interesting parts too, is, you know, the price divergence between the US and the rest of the world. And so, you know, if you could, could you kind of help sort of explain what that means and perhaps why that's happening? Yeah. So for one, as far as the connection between US gas prices that we did see before, say, 2021, in the rest of the world that essentially exists because of the U.S.'s exports of liquefied natural gas. Like the only way to get natural gas across oceans is by liquefying it and putting it on a ship and sending it there. So that's really the only connection we have between, you know, gas markets here and the gas market in Asia and Europe. And so, you know, on the one hand, before that connection was stronger because there was kind of an easier flow between typically, I think supply and demand tended to match a little bit better. What we're seeing with the disconnection now is that demand keeps climbing, say in Europe and Asia, but 
we only have a limited amount of capacity that can be sent out of LNG. We are recently becoming the world's top LNG exporter. We're adding new plants, but still it's not keeping up. So on the one hand, you've got that kind of demand constraint that basically prices in Europe and Asia keep climbing because demand is strong. There are certain supply interruptions in parts of the world, and they're just not able to get enough supply to fill the demand that's really materializing. In the US, however, again, even though LNG exports are at all-time highs, we've got enough production. So like one of the biggest things that's really helpful for the US is that we supply the vast majority of our own gas. We do get some imports from Canada. So that that does make up a certain chunk, maybe like less than 10% right okay. now. And lately, I mean, it's actually something I've been watching that Canada has actually been helping us balance, nice. sometimes, especially whenever production in Texas has been seeing some interruptions because of freeze-offs and that sort of thing. So those connections with Canada have been over the past few months, I've been noticing becoming more important. Cool. But overall, as a whole, the US is a the world's top natural gas producer, the amount we extract is the largest, but most of that's consumed domestically. And that's, I think, where a lot of people get confused too, is they're like, well, I mean, exports have to be like most of what we're doing. It's like, no, most of this gets consumed within the US. But it's a really great advantage that we have that we're able to supply ourselves. So that's kind of the other issue that you face, say, if you're in Europe or Asia, is that you're relying on these kind of external factors to be able to get your supply. And those are, especially when you're looking at whether it's a crude oil market or an LNG market, there's all these different factors that can affect it to cause all kinds of volatility. Right. Whenever you're relying on your own supply and, you know, with you being in the drilling space, I mean, Yes, there are some ups and downs, but overall, as a supply source, it's very steady. And so that's really, I think, what's been a contributing factor is we don't, we don't have to wait for somebody else to send us supply for the most part. Generally, whenever more supply is needed, I've, there are some constraints with, say, pipeline construction and that sort of thing at times. But generally, when the demand is there, we're able to supply a lot of it. So Yeah, I mean, that really helps clear it up. So I'm curious, and you may not know off the top of your head, but on a percentage basis, what percentage of our production is allocated towards exporting? Do you have any idea? Roughly? Ballpark? Oh, let me, I can pull up a, sometimes the stuff off the top of my head is because we do export to Mexico too. Yeah. Let's see, we're doing like 13 BCF a day to LNG, roughly six to Mexico. Oh man, I didn't realize I was going to put you to work. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. <laughs> I'm just trying to get off. About 20% of our production okay. goes to exports. Gotcha. And pipeline exports to Mexico is one that like people, I think, don't focus on a lot. I mean, LNG is yeah clearly like the bigger swing here, but pretty much every year we've seen pipeline exports into Mexico increasing and longer term, I do expect that to continue. So out of that 20... 20- yeah. Okay. I never really considered that. So out of that 20%, I mean, less than half is going to Mexico, probably a small portion of that. Yeah. Going to a third of it is going to, so about six, okay. six BCF a day goes to Mexico generally, and then 13 goes to export LNG. Okay. With Mexico, has that increased over time pretty considerably? Mm. Yeah. 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 So over the past few years, we've generally seen it increase. Oh, trying to think of in percentage terms for 
but it's growing though. Yeah. It's growing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. See. Now this past year, we've seen it slowing down a bit, probably because of whether it's competition with LNG or mm. some internal drivers within Mexico, but longer term, yeah, we do expect for those flows to continue increasing. Interesting. And I would imagine the price that Mexico pays for the gas pipelined in is probably not too bad, right? Like consider yeah, I think most of it's indexed to either Henry Hub or Houston Ship Channel. So yeah. the price benchmarks. But gotcha. so it's mostly indexed to like Texas gas because most of the pipeline connections are coming from like West Texas production areas directly, like New Mexico and Texas production areas directly yeah. into Mexico. So interesting. So one other topic that's been a big sort of topic of discussion on the oil and the gas side is inventories. Obviously we've like on the oil side have drawn down like insane amounts. I don't think we're at an all-time low. I think the all-time low is like 270 some million. We're at like four something now, but on the gas side, I'm not really familiar with the numbers on the gas side, but can you talk a little bit about inventories and are we like kind of hitting the bottom of the, I don't want to call it barrel, but <laughs> getting at a very low point? Right now, I mean, you know, we're at, so when we, in the natural gas space, we always talk about inventories versus the five-year average. That's how we decide how low they are generally. And okay. I mean, so right now we're at like an 11% deficit to the five-year average, but it's really nothing crazy. I mean, so typically when you have inventory levels below what's termed normal, it's kind of a bullish price driver, but the level we're at right now isn't anything worrying. So okay. back when we were in like November, there was kind of the worry that what if storage gets to really low levels because production wasn't really responding to prices in the way we were expecting. We weren't seeing the growth immediately that we were wanting to see. We knew LNG exports were going to be increasing because of these new plants coming online. And then you add on top of that, like the biggest risk in any natural gas market is weather. So especially winter weather, it's like the big question is always, are we going to have a very cold winter or a warm winter? And that can swing demand inventories and prices an incredible amount. And so, right. you know, I did some analysis at the beginning of the winter and it was looking worrisome, like, okay, well, if we increase LNG exports this much, if production doesn't respond and we have a cold winter, we could be sitting at dangerously low storage levels. Luckily that didn't happen. November and December ended up being very mild. Production actually did increase a lot. So we were okay. Past couple of months, we've had really cold weather. So that's caused inventories to come down some, but we're definitely not in a worrisome position in U.S. natural gas. It's we're below the five-year average, but that's not worrisome to alarming be amounts. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. No. Interesting. So, in the interest of time, I know we're getting close to the, the hour mark here, but I do. I'm curious. You know, very sort of high level, the LNG runway. I mean, do you suspect that? You know, like because obviously there's increased demand. We're trying to export. Are folks going to continue to set up these LNG export facilities? I guess the question is, there are a lot of construction plans in the near and even long run to just really ramp up exporting capacity? Or, or is there sort of like a kind of a limit to say, okay, once we get here, we know that that's probably going to be it, at least from what we know today? Yeah, there's a lot of projects in the pipeline right now. So there's one really large facility that's under construction that's going to be coming online in 2024. There's a lot of interest in building new plants beyond that. There's several companies that have gotten enough. So when you're looking at the LNG space, when you're determining whether or not a plant will be built, 
the question is, is there enough buying interest? Because you're not going to get the financing you need to build it unless if you've got, say, like 80% of your capacity locked up in long-term contracts with buyers where you know somebody's going to be buying it. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And so there's several proposed plants that have those agreements in place, and we're expecting them to announce what's called the final investment decision. And basically, once they announce that, it's kind of understood that it will be constructed and built. But those probably won't be online till like 2025 or 26 or so. But long answer short, it's, yeah, we know that there's going to be more construction going forward. Now, how much construction has kind of been complicated recently with some new rules from FERC, where they might start doing more strict environmental analysis of different gas projects. So we don't really know yet exactly what the impact of that is going to be, especially on LNG plants. They haven't been super clear on how they're going to measure that and decide what projects have too much of an environmental impact versus others. So it's a little bit unclear with that right now, but of the ones that are even under construction and already have their permits in place, that's still a significant amount of growth that we feel pretty confident is going to be coming online in, say, the next five years. So we know, yeah, that things will be expanding pretty fast, but the degree of that expansion is maybe it could be a lot higher depending on what happens from a regulatory perspective. Right. No, fascinating. So if you were to kind of take a stab at like what part of the world is like, is there anywhere specific that folks are thinking, okay, this part of the world or this country is all of a sudden going to start like mass, like mass importing? Like, is there anyone out there that's like publicly said, Hey, we're making, you know, changes. We're ready to you know, at some point going to be ready to import a bunch of gas. I mean, are there any sort of like emerging sort of, you know, economies coming online to where people are like, ah, that's a good target for natural gas? Yeah. I mean, so long-term Asia has always been a big growth area. So China's got long-term plans to transition Mm. residential heating industry, power generation away from things like coal and biomass toward natural gas fired. So we know China has a long-term plan to increase LNG demand. They're building out a lot of capacity for new import terminals. So China is kind of the big one. You've also got India that has a lot of similar plans. They tend to be a little bit more price sensitive, but still we expect India as well as parts of Southeast Asia to longer term be big growth markets. Now with things going on with Europe, they may decide to start taking a larger share as well, but there's a lot more uncertainty around that piece. But At least out of Asia, we know that between economic growth and some of these kind of more environmentally driven transition plans, that demand there is definitely growing. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's great. And I know we got one minute left and you can short answer. Do you have any daily habits or routines that you do, whether that's a morning routine, nighttime routine? Do you have anything kind of unique that you like to do to kind of stay focused and recharged? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I rely on coffee every morning. Okay. So wake up and drink coffee. I like it. It's a good answer. Yeah. It's not very (laughs) unique, but (laughs) I'm with you. I'm there as well. Well, Kristen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're extremely busy with everything happening right now. If folks are interested in what we discussed today or want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? And I'll put the link in the show notes, but just high level, what's the best way to connect? Maybe by LinkedIn. That'd probably be fine. 
Okay. LinkedIn. And then we'll put the website link in the show notes as well. That way, if folks are more interested in what Schneider has to offer, again, it's like actually quite amazing on everything that you guys provide. So again, thank you so much. And for all the listeners out there, please leave a review, subscribe, share this episode. I think this is such a great conversation and one that many folks can learn from. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.